So we are uh, in the book of Revelation. We continue in our sermon series. Um, We're in Revelation chapter 2 today. The series title is Church on Fire. So let's just pray and ask the Lord to guide us. Father, we do thank you for all of your good gifts. They all come from you. And we're so thankful for Pastor Ron and Nancy. Thank you for the new generation of worship leaders that he referred to. And we pray your blessing on them. We thank you for the gift of your written word, your revelation to us. And we pray, Jesus, that you would teach us today as you taught your first disciples, not because of me, but because your word is living and active. And so may we hear the voice of your spirit. May we understand your word and know how to apply it to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, it's page 1028. When was the last time you waited anxiously for a communication? Maybe from a a family member or from a friend, maybe from the immigration office, maybe you have been waiting for some kind of communication from head office at your place of, of work. If you were born in the late 90s or later, you may have a hard time remembering a moment when the internet did not exist. It was a dark time. It was a scary time, but it did happen. I remember waiting for letters from head office. Uh, We were working in Brazil. Head office was in California. I would write letters to head office, ask questions about policy, about strategy, and then wait, would wait for weeks for the response. Waited with expectancy because the response would determine our family life, our work, our future. Judy and I, when we dated, we spent uh, months apart. And so I would wait for her letters with great anticipation. Why? Because I was wondering, does she still think about me? Does she love me? And I would open those letters and read them. And Judy would always include little drawings in the margins. I think she was just trying to help me understand what she was trying to communicate to me. But I read those letters with great care. They were important to me. Now, what would be your level of expectation this morning if you had heard this week that Jesus had written a letter to us, to Willingdon Church, and I was going to read it to you right now? (laughs) What would be your level of expectation? The book of Revelation contains... In the first few chapters, chapters two and three, seven messages to seven real local churches. The messages were carried by messengers, carried physically to these churches. So today we're going to look at the the message that was sent to the church at Ephesus. Imagine church at Ephesus the morning of the reading of the letter that we're going to read. Now, there are more churches in Asia Minor. There were more churches than seven, but we have seven messages. And seven is the number of completeness. And so scholars have believed throughout the centuries that these seven letters actually address the worldwide church. And indeed, the issues that they address 
are issues that the church has faced around the world throughout history in every cultural setting. The Apostle John, the one who receives these messages, he knows these churches very well. More importantly, Jesus knows the churches. He knows them intimately. He walks among them. And Willingdon know that Jesus knows us. He sees us. He knows where we've been this week. He knows where we are right now. He is here among us. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the church at Ephesus received this message, and this morning we're going to try to answer two questions. What did it mean for them, and what does it mean for us? Let's begin with the context of the church, the the setting in life of the church at Ephesus. What happened on the streets of Ephesus? Well, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It numbered about 225,000 people. It was known as the metropolis of Asia, a famous place. It was wealthy. It was highly influential. It was the most important seaport on the western coast of Asia. The nations literally came to Ephesus. And so residing in Ephesus, you found Jews and Greeks and Romans, people from all over the Roman Empire and beyond. In fact, you find engraved on the walls of Ephesus the gods of Eastern religions. Ephesus was a political center. It was a religious center. One of the ways that Rome would honor cities in the first century is that they would allow a church to become the guardian of the imperial cult. And so in Ephesus you found temples to Augustus and to Julius and to Domitian. What made Ephesus really famous was the temple to Artemis. The temple to Artemis. She was the goddess of fertility. She had thousands of priests and priestesses. There were cult prostitutes. Her temple was constructed on a platform 100,000 square feet. So that's like the size of two football fields. It was massive. It was the first major temple in the world to be constructed completely of marble. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Her symbol was the date palm tree, and there were garden estates around her temple. And so what was being communicated to the Ephesians was those living in Ephesus was 
this is paradise on earth. Artemis actually promises life to you. So when you look at Ephesus, think of life in first century, the first century of the Roman Empire, life at its best at that time. And that it was in this metropolis of Asia that the church was called to be the church. This letter, it was written to urban disciples of Ephesus. And it's written to urban disciples like us. The seven messages they fall, follow a particular format, and you'll, you'll observe it in the letter that we read today. The, all of the messages begin with an introduction of the sender. So there's a description of the sender, and the descriptions are tied back into the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. After that introduction, there's a statement of awareness of the situation at hand. The sender knows something about the situation in the church, and so we read, I know. And following that statement of awareness, there's an exhortation. Changes are to be made, and there will be consequences for disobedience. And then the letter ends with a beautiful promise. A promise that is to encourage obedience. So let's go to verse 1 of this letter. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars, of course, are the seven messengers. We learn that from chapter 1, verse 20. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. Who is the one that holds the seven messengers in his hand? Well, it's the hand of the one who loves us. And his love is current, it's personal, unwavering. It's the hand of the faithful witness who was sent by the Father and revealed the Father to us and was faithful right to the end. It's the hand of the firstborn of the dead, the one who holds in his hand the keys to death and Hades. Victorious over death, he guarantees our victory over death. The hand of the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Lord God Almighty, the one who is the ruler of kings on earth, who has the whole story from beginning to end in his hands. The hand of the one whose, whose hands were pierced on our behalf. The one who shed his blood on the cross that we might be set free of our sins. The hands the hand of the good shepherd who gave his life for us, who loves us, who sees us, who protects us. His name is Jesus. And notice that Jesus is not on the outside looking in. No, he's in the midst of the churches. He's among the churches. He knows us intimately. He sees us today. So first of all, remember who speaks to you. Remember who speaks to you. And what does he say? Verse 1, the words of him. That phrase, it's equivalent to what we read in the Old Testament. Thus says. Often when you read an Old Testament prophetic word, it begins with thus says. So Jesus, he's identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh, and he speaks forth divinely inspired words. What's he aware of? Verse 2, I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance. You see, the, the Ephesian believers, they endured hardship, uh, boycotts, loss of customers, public shaming because they followed Jesus. 
Jesus refers to their toil, their strenuous, exhausting labor. An active church. They did hard work, church work, mission work. And Jesus says, you have not grown weary. So Willingdon, know that Jesus sees and values your work. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. The Ephesian believers were hardworking. They certainly had to work through some things uh, as a church. Uh, We can read about the beginnings of this church in the book of Acts, Acts chapters 18 through 20. A young man by the name of um, Apollos, he, he showed up and he was a powerful, eloquent preacher. He preached about Jesus, but he didn't understand everything of the way of God. And so Priscilla and Aquila came alongside him and taught him the way of God more accurately. People in Ephesus, they had heard about Jesus, they knew the baptism of John, but they had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul shows up in AD 52, and he preaches the gospel, and the disciples of John, they're baptized by the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues, they prophesy, people are being delivered of evil spirits. Miracles are happening. There are Jewish exorcists living in Ephesus, and they are enamored with what they see happening through Paul, so they try to duplicate his ministry, and they are left naked and wounded by the demons. So kind of a messy beginning to this church, but dynamic. Acts 20 tells us that uh, Paul stayed there for three years, teaching them the whole counsel of God. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul says to the elders, Beware, savage wolves will enter the church and teach twisted things. And based on what we read in the rest of the New Testament, it appears that the the church at Ephesus actually listened to this warning. They heeded the warning that was given to them. So Jesus says in verse 3, I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. The church at Ephesus valued solid doctrine. They tested professing apostles, professing teachers. They discerned the spirits of their time. It's interesting that these things continue to this day. I remember working in a city, and in that city there was a pastor. He was not content with the title pastor, so he started to call himself bishop. And after a while, that wasn't quite enough, so he started to call himself apostle. And then after a while, that title wasn't enough, so now he calls himself Super Apostle. I don't know what comes after that. But elevating himself and preaching the prosperity gospel, and the scriptures are clear, we are to discern the spirits in our times. Jesus goes on to say in verse 6, that this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We're not sure what the Nicolaitans actually believe, but we are more certain around their practices. They practice something called syncretism. What is it? Syncretism is just the naive mixing of different religious faiths, the mixing of different schools of thought, without any uh, attention to coherence or consistency. The Nicolaitans were encouraging the Ephesians to worship the emperors. Why not worship the emperor? 
Why pay the price for not doing that? In order to be in a trade guild, you had to worship the god or goddess of that trade guild. So why lose your job? Worship the god or goddess. There's no price to pay. They practiced immorality. Love for them was defined as tolerating and affirming all things. So as I've thought about it, I believe that the spirit of the Nicolaitans is actually the spirit of our age. Would you agree? So our society teaches pluralism. All faiths are equal. All ideologies are equally valid. To accept a person is to affirm that person. To welcome a person to love is to condone the way that they live. To agree with the way that they live. The spirit of our age, it encourages us to be post-truth, to be post-Christian, to be post-gender, to be post-everything except post-feeling. To be wise in our age is to elevate feeling how we feel above truth. The spirit of our age teaches us that really outside of ourselves there is no ultimate source of truth. We ourselves can define truth for us. This takes us right back to the Garden of Eden, actually, because the, the serpent, the Satan himself, came and tempted Adam and Eve with exactly this. You don't have to submit to God, someone outside of yourselves. You can become like God. You can determine what is truth. You can determine what is good and evil. Throughout history, when the church has abandoned its biblical foundations in order to be accepted, in order to be relevant, when it has abandoned biblical truth in order to be like the culture around it, it has always lost its way. It has been the road to its demise, always throughout history. And the same is true today. And the tragedy is that if we actually preach a compromised gospel of supposed grace, which is not really grace, it actually reflects a permissive, immoral spirit, a deceptive spirit. But if we preach what is called grace, affirming all things, accepting all things, condoning all things, we actually become irrelevant. We are left with nothing to say. Why? Because we no longer are the church of Jesus. We've become something else. So the Ephesians did not water down the gospel in order to assimilate with the culture around them. They stood up for the gospel of Jesus and paid the price in the midst of opposing voices. Jesus saw this and affirmed it. When I think about Willingdon Church, I believe that this church for many years has been committed to biblical doctrine. You see it in the statement of faith. You you see evidence of it in the Willingdon School of the Bible. You see evidence of it in this church's commitment to expository preaching. So we should be grateful. Be grateful for those that have gone before us. Remember that Jesus knows you. Your hard work and commitment to truth. This is what Jesus commends in the church at Ephesus. Remember that Jesus knows you. Your hard work and commitment to truth. But... The Ephesians are not overcoming. They're not conquering the way that Jesus would have them conquer. Why? What could be wrong? 
Jesus sees through the hard work, through the commitment to biblical doctrine, and he sees a flaw right at the center. What does Jesus see? He sees something that endangers their very life, endangers their very future. They lack what he values most. And what is it that he values most? Verse 4, Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Church at Ephesus, you are very active, you are doctrinally sound, but you have abandoned the essence of it all. What we hear from Jesus reminds us of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, even that kind of sacrifice, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, the Ephesian church, it was proud of its location. It was situated in the metropolis of Asia. It was the mother church of all other churches in Asia Minor, the place of greatest response to the gospel. It was proud of its 45-year heritage, the most influential church in that region. In fact, at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, it was the center of the Christian movement worldwide. Imagine this church nurtured by Priscilla and Aquila, and then the theological foundations laid by the Apostle Paul himself. And then pastored by Timothy, pastored by the Apostle John. What a heritage. And if that wasn't enough, tradition has it that Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived there with the Apostle John. Can you imagine doing a Christmas special at the church in Ephesus? Well, who's going to play the part of Mary in the Christmas play? Well, why not Mary? Can you imagine a church with a greater heritage. And despite this history, Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Jesus is willing to remove the lampstand of a church like this, of this kind of prominence of influence, with this kind of history He's willing to remove the lampstand if they don't burn with the essence of it all. You can imagine an Ephesian believer saying, but Lord, (laughs) I'm working hard for the church. And Jesus would say, but do you love me? Jesus, I'm, I'm fighting for the truth on all kinds of fronts. But do you love me? Jesus, I've taken hits for you in the world out there. And Jesus would say, but do you love me? Jesus says, remember the love you had at first. Remember the love you had at first. You see, at its essence, following Jesus is not about correct theology and hard work. It's not about right beliefs and right behavior. It's about a love relationship with the person, Jesus. 
At its essence, following Jesus isn't about working harder. It's not about trying to earn Jesus' acceptance or receiving honor from others for our good works. It's not even about zeal for correct doctrine in relation to Jesus. It's about love for the one that our good doctrine points us to. You see, without love, our knowledge and good works, what do they generate within us? Well, they generate a spirit of self-righteousness, of pride. And as Paul writes, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Without love for Jesus, we lose our love for his people. We become more narrow-minded, more judgmental, joyless. Without love for Jesus, we not only hate the works of the Nicolaitans of our day, we hate the Nicolaitans themselves. We lose our love for the lost, for those who do not yet know Jesus. Earl Palmer has written this. The irony is that the Christian who was first united with the church because of Jesus and his love becomes totally preoccupied, fascinated with themes and goals which would have never won him or her in the first place to have joined the church. Arguments over fine doctrinal points, distinctions of polity, esoteric giftedness, and so on. How can it happen to us? It happens to marriages. It happens to human friendships. It happens to the life of discipleship. The first love has been abandoned, and in its place is the starchy, high-cholesterol diet of activity and church work that will never nourish the human soul. What is first love? Well, it's the love that characterizes the new follower of Jesus. It's a passionate, exuberant love, a love that's there for all to see. It's like the honeymoon love of husband and wife. My wife, Judy, might ask me, Ray, do you love me? And I might answer, well, I I work hard, and I I bring home a a, a paycheck, and uh, I even take out the garbage. And I made breakfast for you this morning. And she would ask, but do you love me? And I might answer, well, Judy, I I speak your love language. I just listened to you for ten whole minutes. And she would say, but Ray, do you love me? And I might answer, well, but I hold to the biblical foundations of marriage. I just reread Tim, Tim Keller's book on marriage for the third time. And she would probably respond, but Ray, do you love me? And I might answer, but Judy, <clears throat> I've prepared a seminar on marriage. It's going to be awesome. You should come. And it's going to have a whole bunch of good stories. Like, remember when I'm proposed to you. We were on Jericho Beach and I hid a ring in a seashell. Did you ever figure out how I pulled that off? And she would probably say, but Ray, do you love me the way you did at first?
You see, married love, it deepens over time. It grows richer over time. But it's also true that it should never lose the excitement and the wonder and the awe of honeymoon love. Because when a husband and wife begin to take each other for granted, when life becomes routine, when the affection and the intimacy are gone, then the marriage is in danger of losing the fire, the life. And what can happen to a marriage can happen to our relationship with Jesus. So Jesus says if the Ephesians don't repent and return to their first love, he's going to remove their lampstand. They're going to lose their place of witness because they no longer are like him. They've become something else. So what would be the cure for their heart disease? What would be the cure for our heart disease if we were suffering from what the Ephesians suffer from? Well, Jesus says... Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. What was it like when you first came to faith in Jesus? What was it like for me? I remember I just wanted to know him. I wanted to spend time with him. I wanted the world around me to know I didn't care about what people thought. I was just so grateful that I'd been saved from the hell that I was living what was it like for you? Jesus says, repent, do a U-turn. Take responsibility for where you are now. Don't, don't blame the world around you. Don't blame the church. Take responsibility for where you are now and make the changes, make the changes in your schedule, in your habits, in your routines so that you can turn back to me. Jesus says, do the works you did at first. Return to the things that expressed love for me when you first fell in love with me. What was it like for you? I remember when I came to faith, I I just wanted to spend time in the scriptures. I wanted to understand what it meant to know the Father, what it meant to uh, be like Jesus, what it meant to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I would walk through the woods, through creation. I would worship. What was it like for you? Jesus says, do whatever it takes to rekindle your love for me. If you don't, I will remove your lampstand. And then he makes a wonderful promise. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. That word paradise, it's of Persian origin. It's translated into the Old Testament as garden. So Jesus here, he's referring back to the Garden of Eden and he's pointing forward to what we will read in Revelation chapter 22 where the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem are described. So back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they chose to become their own gods rather than love God. They lost the opportunity to eat from the tree of life. And as we walk through life, many promise life to us. Artemis, the goddess Artemis, the goddess of fertility, she promised life to the people in Ephesus. 
She promised wealth. She promised pleasure. She promised power to the self-indulging, the self-serving. Her promises were empty. They were fleeting, but they were really seductive. Now, Jesus, the one who has all things in his hands, he makes an enduring promise. And he says to the Ephesians and to us, if you overcome, if you enter into my victory, I'll reverse the curse of separation. You'll participate in the blessing that was intended for Adam and Eve in the garden. You will eat from the tree of life. If you return to the love that you had at first, you'll walk in the blessing of dwelling in the very presence of God. You will enjoy enjoy him forever. You will walk the streets of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And at the center of that city is the tree of life. Its roots are fed by the living water that comes from the throne of God. And in its leaves, there's healing for all people. The tree of life, of course, is Jesus Uh, last Sunday night, Judy and I observed the blood moon. Did any of you look at the blood moon last Sunday night? It was amazing. So we, were, we knew it was going to be a super moon. Um, and so uh, some friends from church here had lent us their telescope. And so we were looking at the, the super moon through the lens of the telescope. And it was just so bright we could hardly look into it. Uh, It was cold outside, so we went back inside, and then I went back out and looked at the moon again, and all of a sudden there was a shadow on the moon. And I thought, oh my goodness, there's going to be an eclipse. I'd forgotten. So I said this to Judy, and Judy looked at it and said, no, I think that's a cloud. I love my wife, (laughs) but she doesn't know everything, so... I rather cautiously said, well, you might want to reconsider because the sky is clear, and if that's a cloud, that's a very interesting cloud. (laughs) So she and I, you know, we're in the internet age. This is the beauty of it. You can just Google, right? Uh, So what's happening? Well, it's going to be a blood moon. Fantastic. And uh, we also Googled, okay, which Jewish festival falls on this day? Well, it's the New Year of the Trees, January 20th. So as I looked at the, you know, the eclipse and then the blood moon and then the supermoon coming back and all of its brilliance after the eclipse, my thoughts were going all over the place and I was just marveling at creation, God our creator, the beautiful universe that he has created. And remembered that we, you know, man and woman, we were in the garden, but we chose not to worship God. No, we put ourselves at the center, and we were separated from God. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus shed his blood on the cross that we might be cleansed of our sin. And as that supermoon came back in all of its brilliance after the eclipse, I thought of, of the book of Daniel where the prophet Daniel says that the wise will shine like the stars in heaven. And so that's what God desires for us. He has life for us. Jesus promises life. Abundant life now and forever. So remember the promise of abundant life. This promise that Jesus has made. This sure promise. 
Maybe we're tired. We're, you know, maybe you come here tired just because you've been working really hard. You're exhausted. You've been really busy. Maybe you have been distracted. Maybe you come here and you're hurt. You're brokenhearted. And Jesus would say to you, I have life for you. Remember my promise of abundant life now and forever. This morning, Jesus isn't inviting us to measure up. He's not saying, hey, Willingdon people, just work harder. I remember being in a meeting, a leadership meeting, and most of the people in that meeting were of Dutch and German background, and we were looking at a problem. And a number of people in the room said, you know what? We just have to work harder. (laughs) Right. (laughs) If you're doing the wrong thing, why keep on doing it, right? But anyways, work harder. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying try to measure up. He's not giving you a checklist and saying try to check off all the boxes. Make sure you do it all. He's just asking, do you love me the way you did it first? And if you don't, why not? And would you return to doing the things you did at first? Remember, repent, redo, rekindle your love for me. If you do that, I promise you abundant life now and forever. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So I want us just to take some moments for uh, silent reflection. This is between you and Jesus. And when it comes to you, the only one that can answer these questions from Jesus is you. And so here Jesus asking you, do you love me? the way you did it first? Do you love me as you did it first? And will you go back to doing the things that you did at first? pray that these questions would remain with us today and in the coming days. Jesus asks, do you love me as you did at first? And will you do the things that you did at first? (coughs) And as I've prayed through this message, I've 
been reminded over and over again of the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. It's in Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, I want to pray that prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for Ephesus. I want to pray that for Willingdon. Pray it for us. Paul, he prayed this prayer from his knees. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to follow his example. If you want to uh, join me on your knees, then feel free to do that. Father, we we bow before you. You, the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your Holy Spirit in our hearts. As we turn from our own ways, whatever they are, and return to our love for you as it was at first, Jesus May you dwell in our hearts through faith that we, being rooted and grounded in your love, may have strength to comprehend with all your people what is the breadth and length and height and depth of your love. And to know your love, Jesus, that surpasses our highest thoughts, that we may be filled with all the fullness of who you are. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you.